Hey, this is MMNM's Mark Iskowitz, editor-at-large. Welcome to this MMNM podcast titled Beyond the Bot, Bot. improving omni-channel patient and HCP engagements with conversational AI, sponsored by IPG Health. In the past few years, voice and chat virtual assistants have been deployed within every single top 20 life sciences organization. Virtual assistants are projected to handle 75 to 90% of healthcare and banking queries by 2025 and are currently being created for an array of patient needs, including diabetes education, oncology treatment, onboarding, and financial assistance for arthritis medications. Today, we'll discuss the evolution of conversational AI in healthcare, current trends, and that hot topic that people can't stop talking about, generative AI. And we have two guests on hand who live and breathe this technology to discuss the topic, Elise Whitaker, who's SVP, Director of Conversational Experiences at FCB Health, and Brett Kinsella, founder and CEO at VoicePot.ai and Synthedia. Elise and Brett, welcome to the MMM podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for having us. Forward to this discussion. Um, how about we just start out with uh, having you both kind of introduce yourselves, give a, a brief background of your professional areas of interest, uh, what you are currently doing professionally, and your connection to conversational AI. Elise, how about we start with you? So my background really has been in digital transformation and user experience for my entire career. I currently have been working within the conversational AI space specific to healthcare and pharmaceutical for about the past five and a half years. And really, I spent the majority of my time in CPG until my older son was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia when he was four and a half. He's a survivor, so it's all great. But at the time, it was extremely um, just crazy, not, not only obviously, you know, his prognosis and what he was going through, but also because there was such a lack of communication and understanding. And... For me as a caregiver, even though I had a sister-in-law who was a pediatrician at the time and a very good friend who was an oncologist, and I was able to rely on them for information, I was still so confused. Nothing made sense. I didn't understand terminology. I didn't understand the drugs, the generic terms. I would look them up. I didn't understand generic versus branded. So once he was in survivorship, I just felt like there's got to be a way for me to take all of my professional experience work within the healthcare industry, you know, with my personal experience and try to merge those two to really like better the communication for patients and caregivers in this space. And I've just kind of like brought that passion into work for the past 10 years. I'm glad to hear that your son is now, as you said, in, in survivorship and sounds like a wonderful way to merge, as you said, your, your personal and, and professional experiences into this new chapter. Brett, how about yourself? Well, I'm really excited about Lisa's story and like how some of the technologies work and would be so helpful today that she really didn't have as much access to a couple of years ago. So I've been working in the AI space since 2013. And really what I've done throughout my career is work on new platforms back in the day of the web. Remember that in the 90s when that was a hot, hot topic and uh, social and, and mobile, a lot of enterprise technologies. But I really started focusing on AI about 10 years ago. And in particular, I think probably best known for our work in conversational AI and generative AI. And that comes through a couple of different places. We founded a, a publication called voicebot.ai in 2016. Uh, and really focused a lot on filling the gap around voice assistance and conversational AI technologies. It wasn't being properly covered in the market. And that 
we're probably known for that news, but we're also known for research reports. We have more data on what's happened in the industry around consumer adoption, things like that than anybody else. And we started covering generative AI in 2017. And then obviously that picked up a lot in 2020 when GPT-3 originally came out and wowed everybody in the midst of the pandemic. And we founded another organization last year in the summer called Synthedia, which is about generative AI and synthetic media. It's really just focused on that. And that's a newsletter. And so that's what we do. We help to educate the market. We help people understand the business of those technology spaces, but also the application space, the use cases, what people are really getting benefits from. You know, we're, we're living in this Amazon, Google, Snapchat world uh, and where consumers have gotten used to and really expect speedy, prompt answers and efficient communication. I mean, both of you have been immersed in conversational AI since the infancy of the technology, but I, I'd like to know how you see conversational AI evolving over the past five years. I think we're living in a chat GPT world right now. And I would expect most of the people who are listening today are familiar with it. If they're not, they should check it out by a little company called OpenAI, which was acquired by Microsoft, or at least they bought half of it, which was effective control. So when we think about conversational AI, a lot of people know it from the consumer standpoint, the Alexas, the Siri's, the Google assistants, they have these voice assistants that they've interacted with, or they know it from website chatbots. And the whole idea here is it's a little bit different in the past where we typed in or we pressed buttons or something like that. Now we could just use natural language and we could converse. Now, more recently, when we talk about ChatGPT, it's... It's really an extension of that. And it started out first as text. And we're now seeing a lot of this voice interaction. Just this week, uh, Microsoft Bing implemented its voice interactive solution, Perplexi AI. Some others already allow you to do voice input. And the generative AI is really just an extension. It's the next evolution of this, uh, of this idea that we can talk like we would talk to humans and these assistants will get back to us. They'll, they'll respond to us almost as if they're a human expert in whatever category we're asking them about. And so that's one of the most interesting things that has happened. And really what it's doing is it's unlocking access to information that used to be really reserved for people who were already experts in the field because they knew where to find it. They knew how to interpret it. And now we have a system like the traditional voice assistants would help you find it more effectively. But the generative AI assistants, they'll summarize it. They'll give you real world examples of how it's used. They'll explain to you like you're an eighth grader so that it's easier for you to comprehend the, the core concepts and really explore and expand your knowledge base around areas that are important to you. Plus, they do all sorts of other things, which like they'll write poems for you and things like that, which is really fun um, and also particularly useful. And so like there's just a ton of use cases out there that people have, whether it's writing assistance or research and search or, you know, it's changing the way we consume the web as well. Didn't we have some comment last week that people are even writing letters to their significant others via ChatGPT? <laughs> Of course. Well, there was a South Park episode on this. So everyone, maybe it's just parody, uh, but there's no technology is legitimate until South Park parodies it. Yes. And it only took like four months for maybe not even, I think it was three months before South Park parodied it. That's how fast this moved. Just in case people don't know, ChatGPT launched on November 30th. And it's kind of amazing. If you haven't checked it out, you really should because you can ask it all sorts of questions to do things. And there's a lot of other solutions you should try too, which we can talk about if we want later. Uh, but it was the fastest application to 100 million monthly active users in history. The next closest 
was TikTok, which took nine months. ChatGPT did it in about six weeks. It's astounding. You know, the adoption is incredible. Just kind of broke down a wall between the consumer and, and this technology. What do, what do you see as the key use cases, uh, Brett? Well, when we think about conversational assistance, there's a lot. So if you think about what Alexa or Siri do, they allow you to, usually it's task oriented. They allow you to execute tasks very quickly. The conversation is just natural language input. We think of these as one shot interactions. You just ask it to do something and you get you get the response back, turning on the TV, uh, sending a message, whatever it might be. When we look at uh, generative AI, it's more about the knowing function. So you think about Adam Chire, who is one of the founders of Siri and then Viv Labs, which became Bixby. He talks about the doing and the knowing functions of the assistant. So the voice assistants to date have been very good at task execution and a little bit okay in terms of knowledge. The generative AI solutions are really good at the knowing part. They can look at reams, vast amounts of information and give, give it back to you. And most people have interacted with it in such a way as that they're, they're looking at information that they might find on the internet, but there's other applications as well. So like one of the best use cases, and if you haven't tried it, everyone should take an article or a research paper, like maybe a medical research paper, copy and paste it into chat GPT or one of these other solutions. It'll give you a summary, but you can also ask it questions. Like, what did it mean by this? Or does this report uh, talk about this type of uh, condition or those types of things? Or you can take four articles to paste them in together and say, could you combine these and summarize them? So that's like a great use case, writing letters, emails to uh, maybe to your loved ones, maybe to other people, professional, uh, writing YouTube headlines, like, cause we all need better YouTube headlines, uh, writing blog posts and product copies. So there's a lot, the AI writing assistance really big, but one of the things that's really revolutionizing technology is the code writing assistance, software code, these systems that you can just type in the type of function you want it to write. And, it'll, and you say you want it to write it in Python, they'll give you the code. Or you can upload your code and you say, hey, this code isn't working. What's wrong? And it'll actually help you debug it. It'll tell you what what you think the functions are. And so if we think about things that have already changed, you're writing, obviously, and we have code, we have images, so you can just type something in, you can get an image generated, like it's a whole nother part of generative AI, and then search. And I use it every day. I use Bing Chat, I use Perplexity, I use the new Google search generative experience. Occasionally I'll use Bard as well. I'm saving about an hour a day in search because I have to do a lot of research in my work as a publisher. And so it's helping me find those little things that just took me a long time because it was, I would search and I'd find some links and I'd have to read all these articles and try to, it's helping me get to the answers much faster. And I think much richer material than, you know, had in the past. Right. That, that's amazing. Uh, we should talk offline, Brad, <laughs> being you're in the publishing business. Um, I've heard also that, you know, doctors are using it, you know, to uh, write letters to health plans to dispute coverage decisions that they're not happy with. But moving over to you, Elise, what do you see as some of the pharma specific use cases? And, you know, kind of if you want to spice in, in some of your observations of how you've seen this technology evolve in the healthcare space over the last few years, that'd be great to hear as well. Yeah. So taking a step back, kind of thinking back, focused more on conversational AI, it's been interesting to see the evolution because I feel like five to six years ago, we were considering that early adoption in pharma and healthcare of virtual assistants. So when I think about one of the very first solutions that I worked on that we deployed, it was for a top five pharma company for Medifares because they needed a way to augment the call center. So the call center at the time, I think one call to a call center was averaging $78 
for that organization. So we were at the time utilizing conversational AI to triage those frequently asked questions to the call center by HCPs and allowing them to self-serve without having to dial the 188 number. And that was for a portfolio of products. And we got that cost down. I think it was $12 an inquiry. So massive call center savings when you really think about that. But the cool thing at the time was it was almost so new that the company was willing to take the risk, right? <laughs> there weren't enough articles out. There there wasn't enough fear yet in place, I believe, at that time that this very large pharmaceutical organization felt comfortable to deploy this solution. And then over time, obviously, virtual assistants, chatbots with open field text, and then there was voice. And voice was a super exciting time for all of us. I know Brett's mentioned this you know, in different talks he's he's had, but just, I think we all thought voice was it. I don't know about you, Brett. Like I felt like in two years, every single search is going to be via voice and people are only going to use voice. They're not even going to look at screens. And, you know, that was my prediction. And, but it was cool. I mean, we were deploying public voice skills for pharmaceutical brands. One was for an uh, rheumatoid arthritis drug. I won't mention the company or brand, but um, at the time, we we deployed an Amazon Alexa skill, and the only guardrail really was you cannot provide dosing or administration information. So it was asking, answering those questions like, my syringe is cloudy, what do I do? Or um, I need a new travel pack, how do I order one? Or how do I get a new Sharps container? Or how do I refrigerate my injectables. So it was just answering those basic questions. Then there were a lot of cost and coverage questions we included within that voice skill. And similarly, we did, you know, more of an awareness skill for a breast cancer mutation and just being able to answer those frequently asked questions about this mutation. So a lot of like just unique, interesting ways to provide that information to consumers and or patients and caregivers in a way that we felt they were going to consume the information either then or soon thereafter. And then I think obviously all of a sudden there was a lot of risk concerns over open field text, going back to virtual assistants again, a lot of those guardrails started to strictly get put in place from enterprise company to enterprise company who would allow an open field text. And just so everyone's aware, I'm sure anyone listening because you're all, you know, everyone's in healthcare or pharma The biggest concern with open field text is obviously adverse events and that a patient will mention that they have an adverse event that could be life-threatening that's going to go unreported or not provide them with the correct answer. And that could be life-threatening and detrimental. So obviously the real concern is valid. It's very valid. But what we were doing, we were very actively creating solutions that had features where we had adverse event detection. If we were deploying a solution with open field text and a user were to type in anything that even at the lowest threshold might possibly say be saying something about an adverse event, we had a solution in place that could detect if someone might be suggesting an adverse event, reply with them to confirm if in fact that is potentially an adverse event, and then quickly escalate it to the correct parties at the pharmaceutical company. So that's what we were doing at that time in the evolution. And then I think the last thing, so we went through all of that, then COVID hit, then there were different needs in place. And now I feel like just specific to conversational AI, we've gotten back down the curve again, where 
a lot of pharmaceutical companies will only approve a button driven experience. Not all, but I feel like we've gotten back to like a lower plane again. You just deployed something with a virtual human. That's a conversation. Well, so I said a lot, <laughs> a lot of great, great point though. Um, I will say in the past years, it has been challenging because there've been a lot of boundaries put in place, but luckily what has probably happened, thanks for that softball, Brett. <laughs> um, luckily what's happened is that slowly the guardrails are coming down dependent on the organization. It's, it varies from pharmaceutical company to pharmaceutical company. And now there is a big ask for digital people. We can talk about that more later, but a big ask for digital people avatars, those all have um, voice. It's a nice hybrid between a chat solution and a voice solution, I like to say, um, allows users to actually interact in a way they prefer. If they prefer to have a video on and facial recognition, awesome. If they want to type in or use buttons and not ever use a microphone, they can do that as well. So there are new technologies and that's probably where we are right now. And then of course, Gen AI. Yeah. Let's, let's drill down a little bit further into that. At least, you know, we've seen the last couple of years, the shift toward personalized patient care. Uh, and at the same time, as you said, you have conversational solutions being deployed within the top 20 pharma companies. You know, maybe there's been a little bit of a retrenching there as you know, more of those articles have come out, as you put it. But how have you seen the pharma brands evolve toward a more patient-centric approach using digital tools? Yeah, so I think, not to be cliche, but I think COVID really changed patient care and put the onus more on patients because, number one, it had to, because it had to become virtual care for a while and remote care, but also because as time has evolved, patients have they've started to really own their healthcare more and more. They've become just smarter and wiser and a lot more educated. Um, I would say younger generations, they're very educated. They want to own more of their healthcare decisions. And so with that has come a need for digital tools that patients and caregivers can use to manage their care. And so what we've seen with conversational AI that's been really awesome is taking those, quote, basic and this is where beyond the bot happens, right? Taking that basic FAQ button-driven chatbot and turning it into a very meaningful experience where a user can completely self-serve on their own 24-7 by asking a question and getting an answer, but also by having authenticated experiences for patient support. So basically using conversational AI to expand any patient support program you allow for an authenticated experience from the time a user onboards onto a new protocol. And then you can really have conversational AI holding the hand throughout that journey, whether it's providing onboarding information or sending reminders that they have to fill a prescription in a week. You know, we know that certain, certain drugs have like a 60% drop off when they're prescribed in the ER um, 60% drop off after that fill, initial fill in the hospital. And then a lot of those patients don't refill for things like AFib, et cetera. So how do we help to bridge that gap? What is that communication tool in place to help those patients to manage their care once they leave the ER? That's just one example. Sure. And, you know, you know, some of us with experience with specialty drugs know that they typically they're, they are high priced therapeutics, you know, and the industry has been shifting more towards specialty products. And each patient that goes on these products is potentially a lucrative uh, source of, you know, revenue for the drug company. So, you know, there's probably a, a fair amount of hesitation about in terms of, do we allow a 
uh, a chatbot to kind of manage that process of onboarding and adherence, so to speak, versus a human. But uh, it's really it's really interesting um, to see the evolution there. Brett, I mean, you, you talked about earlier, you know, how big players like Microsoft with Bing AI and Google with Bard and OpenAI, of course, with Chat GPT four are making this AI chatbot technology that was previously restricted to the test labs more accessible to the general public. There could be some confusion in terms of whether those are quote-unquote chatbots and what's the difference between those and, say, a chatbot deployed on a brand website, which is kind of what Elise was referring to maybe as that like button-activated chatbot. Can you explain the difference? Well, if you think about a a chatbot that you might have interacted with or a voice assistant in that case... uh, what you can think about is it's a user interface first and foremost. So the question is like, how can you interact with it? In the old days, we could go to a website, we could click links, and maybe in some places, this is still true in, in some of the healthcare world, where you can't ask a question unless you call somebody. Like online, you just it's all links and and buttons and those types of things to find information if you want to do any type of self service, and then you have to talk to a person. Maybe there's some smart routing in your IVR system or something like that if they call in. The chatbots are really this idea of being able to take, first and foremost, natural language input. So I can speak as I do as a human because I don't have all the words that you have in the in the healthcare industry. I'm not an expert in that case. I say it what I think is important, what I think I'm asking for. And then the natural language systems are so, supposed to be good at matching your intent. And so once it matches your intent, it it already has mapped all of these intents, like the things you want, to information that's pre-approved. And then it just provides that to you. Or if it doesn't have anything, it'll do what they call fallback. And it'll say, oh, I'm not sure I can answer that. And maybe ask you a follow-up question for more clarification or direct you to, you know, call in to answer that or something else. Okay. So that's when you think about the the bots that most of the things that you've interacted with up to this point, you have this idea of variable input as opposed to fixed input. And, but it's really structured output because the AI is working on the front end. It's understanding what you're saying and what you want. And then it's thinking, okay, based on what you want, here are the things I know I could give to you in terms of response, whether it's a task execution or it's information. And then when we move on to BARD and Bing and, and all these other things that are going on with the giant companies, what they're doing is they're actually enabling variable output as well. It's still variable input. It's trying to understand what you what you want in some ways. And like the word understand, I use that loosely because it's a little, the way these systems operate, it's a little bit different. Uh, we think about natural language understanding versus large language models. But then the output is it's going to basically predict what the right answer for you is. It's not going to a database with pre-approved information. It's going to a database that was trained often on pre-approved information. And I should differentiate something here. So you think about ChatGPT. Everyone says, oh, it's just trained on the internet. So you never know what's going to come out of it. These systems, when they're deployed in an enterprise workspace, are generally trained on data from that enterprise. So it might have learned on the internet to understand the structure of language, like what words mean and like how to, how to think about to putting words together in an effective way to explain to you what's happening. But it's actually looking at a, what, what they call a vector database of your information. And this is when we think about when we build FAQs, like FAQs are like great, medical documentation are great in this. So then it's looking in there for the answer. And very often we think about it as retrieval models. And so it's going in there and it's trying to formulate then an effective way to communicate to you based on the information you've already provided. 
can it be incorrect? Can it come from some other places? Yes, there are these things do happen. Uh, but that's I think that's an important point of clarification. It's not just all here's the information from the internet. Mostly the way this is being done in enterprises, healthcare, uh, consumer brands, media across the across the gamut of industries is it's actually using the technology that allows you to communicate effectively in natural language back for this open domain, like broad questions, things you never even considered might be asked. And it's actually looking at your approved data and trying to formulate a response that answers the question. And sometimes they're supplementing with things outside of your data if that's how you set up the system. If I can add to that, because I think you've touched on a lot of important points, and then we need to think about how those translate within pharma. So we are at that point right now where we want to get to the point of being able to have every pharmaceutical company have confidence in having a quote open field text box or a microphone where a user on any interface can just quickly ask a question and get that answer without having to click a button, without having to have dialogue path created for them. But I think there's a happy medium right now. So when we talk about NLU, natural language understanding, to then provide the correct answer, like Brett mentioned, it is to a point scripted, if you will, in that we create knowledge bases at the moment where we are only using content that then goes through MLR and gets approved. So for us, it's very, very important that we stress that anything we create does get approved through MLR and no content no answer is ever given to an open question that hasn't been approved by MLR. Now, where the you know machine learning comes in and where Gen AI can help beyond machine learning is those in-context tools that we are allowed to use to help create utterances or to help create additional answers or to help maybe with that multi-question so someone asks about dosing and then they ask about dosing for a five-year-old who's also on these drugs, you know, that's where we do have the ability. It almost is used as like um, helps with time efficiencies. Like Brett was saying, we can use Gen AI tools in a very legal way to help us to create more synonyms so that the back end can understand if someone says a tegaderm or a bandage, those mean the same thing. If someone says a dressing, is it in the right co- medical context that we're not referring to salad dressing? I mean, it's a cheesy you know, example, but it's an easy one. We're not referring, to, the user's not referring to salad dressing. They're saying, I have a lot of redness around my dressing. So, but that's an easy explanation of why it's so important important that the back end can understand what the user's asking and be able to answer it correctly. So in anything that we're doing currently at IPG Health, we are ensuring that if we are using Gen AI tools, they're only being used in a way that is helping us to build out additional things that we need to train the back end. We're not using it to pull content from scratch. We're using it to sift through the existing content and create outlines or create initial FAQs. And then we're then adding to that content, sifting through that content, adding conversational design and running that all through medical regulatory review. Yeah. Just to like build on top of that, you can create, these systems will help you create 50,000 variants very quickly. 
like within a few minutes of all the types of things that people could ask. That then becomes really helpful in your NLU-based uh, conversational assistance, training them to understand a wider variety of ways people could express this. So I generally think about the creation side. You can use these tools to help you create more effective solutions, even though they might be more rigid like the older systems. You can use them also to interact with a customer or a patient in this case who asks it, and then you've sort of these open-ended input and open-ended output. Uh, and, and there are certain classes of items or certain classes of questions, which are going to be fine for that. There are other classes, which you can have what they call guardrails built in, that if it hits a certain type of class of question, then it doesn't, it only responds from your structured database. Other things you might be able to do a more conversational uh, variable output. The third thing is there's a lot of internal tools that are being used here. So for example, agent assist. So people who have been in the contact center world understand that the agents are always looking at knowledge bases, right? They ask a question. They don't know the answer to everything that's being asked. What the large language models right now are listening alongside them and giving them suggestions on what the person means and what the topics might be. And then that can either give them an answer or it can have them link to their, their database. So it can make them more efficient on proper call resolution and as well as the speed of resolution, because we have all had that experience where the person on the other side of the line just doesn't understand what we're asking about. Or, or here's the other great thing. Because we've talked to the third person now already in our phone tree experience journey, we'll call it, the third person gets a, the large language model summarizes everything that was said to the other two agents that I already talked to. So they don't, we don't have to explain everything back to them. It's something that they can get up to speed very quickly. And so there are a lot of these types of tools that are being used. It's not just writing a love letter or uh, writing a YouTube headline or a blog post. A lot of it is actually these core problems that we've always had trouble with. In particular, if you think about in the contact center, there's so much turnover, six months, nine months average. They don't see enough of the variety uh, in their tenure there. It takes a long time to ramp them up. This can actually make them productive faster. We're already seeing that. Yeah. And I think it also helps with the accuracy. And, and I go back to the time efficiency and any time efficiency results in cost efficiency. So when we're able to use some of these generative tools on the front end to help with that content creation, it's going to take us less time, which means the end product is going to cost less to the client or customer. So, you know, across the board, there's efficiencies. And I think even utilizing tools and working with partners that we've already been working with who themselves have been building, creating features within their platforms that utilize some form of Gen AI in a safe way has also helped us. There's no, I mean, no plugs, <laughs> but like VoiceFlow is definitely doing it, helping us to create utterances. Orbit is doing it with some, you know, helping create their content and context. Um, trying to think who else. There's a Juji AI. That company has been utilizing generative AI. So I definitely think it's going to benefit all of us because just in the short amount of time, it's been just wonderful to see so many partners somehow integrating it into their platforms. And I can only imagine in another six months what that's going to look like too. Yeah. Those are amazing um, comments and important caveats you know, for people working in this industry as well. Elise, just to stay with you here uh, for this next one, you know, we've all seen the shift, the major shift in how field reps are engaging with and educating HCPs in this low C slash no C 
doctor post COVID world. How do you see digital technologies, specifically conversational AI, assisting these field reps in reaching overburdened HCPs? Sure. So it's an interesting question because I think when I, again, when I kind of started getting into this, it was all about my passion to wanting help to help the patients who at 2 a.m. are searching for information and their doctor Googling and get the wrong, getting the wrong information. And what's interesting is throughout the course of the five and a half to six years that I've been working specifically in conversational AI, there it's been awesome to just work on so many HCP solutions and really HCP solutions. Um, I, I would say we've deployed even more of those in the course of the past five plus years than patient because of, again, going back to that risk. And I think pharma feels more comfortable using open field AI for HCPs in the short term um, than for patients because there's less risk with the adverse event reporting. So really what I've seen with HCPs, it's kind of cool. I mean, Again, pre-COVID, we already had a very low C population growing because of the overburden placed on HCPs with additional admin tasks, with EHR burdens, et cetera. So as they had more tasks put on their day, reps obviously have had less time to see them. And then when COVID hit, no reps were seeing HCPs face-to-face. So digital tools that weren't once allowed were allowed were obviously starting to become okay in the space. So some cool things that we've used conversational AI for, for HCPs to help field reps educate HCPs, definitely digital people, which is something I think Brett mentioned earlier. So if anyone's not familiar, we try to call them digital people and not humans because we never want to make the assumption that it is a human on the other end of the line, but creating customized avatars that speak to you very authentically, video on, It feels like you're interacting with a person. So that type of tool is really great for training. So educating HCPs either on a new portfolio that they're not familiar with or educating them on, say, label changes, et cetera. Uh, So we've used it in that way for basically med ed. Conversational tools, like I mentioned earlier, for augmenting that call center have then also been used for that quick, what we like to refer to as conversational search. So how can we help an HCP on demand when they have a quick question to get a quick answer without having to go through a deep meta info website, but quickly just ask a question even into a toolbar and using that predictive search or NLU, they type it, they ask a question, voice or text, get a quick answer back. So that's been used a lot. And then a cool thing that some companies have deployed is a chat solution that interacts with an IVA. So can you take that IVA a step further and can you have a virtual assistant or a conversational search feature where the HCP can ask a question and then the IVA can flip to that page, give the answer and then show the the statistics, the graph, whatever that relates to that that answer. Interactive visual aids we're talking about there, right? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Interaction. Yeah, IVAs. So, and then the last thing is when we think about field reps, you can actually use virtual assistants to help field reps. So we've also worked on solutions where we're actually helping field reps to become trained. So now that they are getting back in their cars a little bit more, you can still actually use digital tools to help them when they're driving around their region by almost having like a simulation 
So creating a digital tool where that field rep can simulate that experience of asking the doctor questions, um, providing answers, having that conversation, that practice can be taking place within a car um, through voice. So that's just a kind of cool thing as well. So there's so much, I think it's right now like 60% HCP, 50% patient deployments in the space, maybe even 65, 35. Wow. That's surprising. I I wouldn't have guessed that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In closing, I'd like to ask you both, even if it may seem cliche to some, what's on the horizon? What's coming next? You know, where, where, or what are the biggest opportunities coming up in this space? And what does the next generation of applications look like? And Elise, how about we start with you? Sure. So obviously my hope is that we'll get to a place with large language models where they can be fully trusted. And well, and again, I think about 2 a.m. having a question, getting the right answer. Um, So my hope is that generative AI um, can move forward in a very safe way to move safely into the pharma space sooner than later in the healthcare space. In the shorter term, I'm really hoping that we're just able to utilize that open field more and more to really be able to get meaningful solutions deployed so that anyone can quickly self-serve in a very frictionless way. So frictionless, meaning the less buttons they have to click on, the less friction there will be in the experience. That's what we're all looking for. (laughs) Brett? So there's a lot of ways that people are using conversational assistance and generative AI today. Let me focus on a couple that I think are going to emerge in healthcare and the implication of that. One is there's a lot of call center data that never gets looked at unless there's some sort of problem and it gets escalated. I'm seeing people right now use large language models in conjunction with natural language analytics tools to sift through enormous reams of call center data that never usually had looked before. And what they're doing is they're identifying problems. They're identifying opportunities. Some of those problems are things, oh, we could have done this better, or we had issues that we didn't even know that we had. Um, but also the opportunities, they're seeing what people are asking about. And those opportunities are too twofold. One is they're helping the agents work better uh, in terms of being able to answer questions better. They're helping the chatbots to work better, all these other types of things. But they're also identifying new things to automate. We are in an era of productivity. Everybody's seeking productivity. We've had very little over the last 20 years. This is the next tool. It's the we're talking about a productivity revolution we haven't seen since the 80s. And so if you use tools like human first, they are allowing you to look at that call center data, ingest it, it's summarizing it, it's allowing you to collate it and look at like on a histogram type methodology, what's actually happening in there. And then people are using it for decision making going forward. So I think that's like one of the, the really incredible things is happening. The other thing is I think it's going to wind up being a standard of care for healthcare providers in particular, but I think this might also go into the pharmaceutical world that they're going to have to have their own co-pilots that they're going to have to give co-pilots to their customers. They're going to have to have co-pilots for themselves so that they can actually sift through all this information. There's more information than we know what to do with. Large language models, the bots have arrived just in time because we created this problem ourselves by just like this explosion of information. No one can keep up with it. And this is the first tool that we've seen that allows you to actually synthesize that, extract information, use it to help you make better decisions. We used to think about this idea of an assistant that does things for you. We also thought about this idea of an advisor, a virtual advisor. And think of that now as the co-pilot. It helps you with these tasks. It helps you make better decisions. And I'll just tell people, I think 
you're, you're going to see a situation where a lot of this, they say, oh, it's, it's all overhyped and all these types of things. But then you're also going to see it's just pervasively used uh, throughout your life. And it's going to, you just look back 10 years. There's this old saying that uh, we overestimate the impact of technology in the short term, but we underestimate its impact in the long term. And this is the most significant shift that we've seen since the web. The web is really important. We went from analog to digital. It like changed everything. It's hard to even conceive of that now. But 30 years ago, we didn't have most of the things that we have today. So that was a huge shift. Mobile was like a, a change in context uh, for that. Um, but when we think about AI and generative AI and protection, this is a new generational platform. So it's going to have a 30-year run and it's going to reach into every part of our life. And so what I tell people is, you're probably underestimating how much this is going to impact you and your organization today. Start looking at it, figuring out ways that you can get these quick wins. It is one of those things. It's like a technology. They don't even have to give the technology away. It provides so much benefit immediately that they, you can get these quick wins. So I always tell people like, take a, take a look at it and, and try it because seeing is believing. Yeah. I, in my, from my limited, you know, perspective, Brett, I, I sense that you're right in, in terms of that historical view, you know, the web ushering in a, a digital versus analytic era uh and then you know mobile with the iphone um was was sort of a definitely a blip on on the timeline but this it feels like we're entering a whole new you know um stadium you know uh, of of possibilities here a much larger sort of uh, fish tank you know to expand as a as a society in our relationship with technology Sorry for those clunk, clunky analogies, but well, no, the, the bots are coming just <laughs> in bot. time to save us from all the problems we've created. The bots have arrived. Yes, I like that. Well, the and it's it's funny because we used to say the bots are coming like six years ago, but now bot means a whole different thing than exactly. it did even two years ago or even a year ago. So even just that alone is just mind boggling. Well, on that note, uh, I say we wrap here. Uh, we can go on, you know, for another hour, but, um, you know, we know this technology is vastly powerful. We just, you know, don't know the use cases yet, but they're emerging. Um, so thank you for explaining that, you know, so eloquently and sort of how we can make many of the processes that we deal with day to day more efficient, more productive and stay compliant, which is, of course, of particular importance in the pharma and healthcare spaces. So you're both a wealth of knowledge. Thank you both so much for this. It was really fascinating. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening. If anyone has any follow-up questions, you can check out voicebot.ai, uh, which is Brett's one of Brett's websites, or of course, ipghealth.com, which is uh, the company that Elise works for. Okay, thank you to Elise and Brett again, and thank you everybody out there. We'll see you next time on the MMM Podcast.